from my reading of history and anthropology, we were meant to be in groups of 20, 30, 50, 100, where you could share responsibilities, you had friends, you had elders, you had people that you could learn from, you had mentors, you had teachers, you had gurus. And then below, below on the flip side, you also had younger people to teach and share and, and instruct. And, and, and that this sort of larger communal structure uh, was just better. I just think it's better for our health. It's better for our longevity. It's better for our brains. The seven chakras, swirling vortices of energy positioned throughout our body from the base of the spine to the crown of the head. For thousands of years, this ancient wisdom has been passed on from master to disciple. What are the functions of these energy centers? And could these chakras help you unlock your destiny and find your true purpose? Welcome to My 7 Chakras, and now your host, Aditya Jai Kumar. What's up, Action Tribe? AJ here, host and founder of My7Chakras, my7chakras.com, the place where we help you experience healing, experience bliss, and experience true alignment in your life. Now, as many of you know, I am in Mexico right now. I hope you listened to our previous Puerto Morelos. And leaning into this uh, experience and allowing the universe to connect me with other amazing individuals. Here I am with another episode, um, this time closer to the beach, <laughs> because last time it was at Sundara Yoga uh, Shala, which is close to the beach. But here I am today at Casa Om in Mexico, which is right in front of the beach. And I guess the next interview I'm going to do <laughs> on the waters. But I'm here with my new friend, Hargobind Khalsa, who is the owner of this center. And obviously, he's done many things more. He's super passionate about helping people be successful in yoga, entrepreneurship, making friends, living healthy and having fun. He loves yoga because it helps us live more free and take and he takes those lessons into his family and his personal life as well. With his wife, he built Casa Om Mexico, Casa Om Potomac. He used to own two hot yoga studios and a Kirtan label, co-founded two yoga festivals and has hosted over 400 retreats. And we were just chatting a bit prior to this. I got a personal tour of this retreat center, which is amazing. Casa Om, all the different rooms and the hot yoga studio and the kitchen and the swimming pool. I almost felt like I got to start my retreat right away. <laughs> but uh, but I hope you're going to enjoy this session. And I know you will. And with that being said, um, welcome to the show. Hargobind. Thanks so much for having me. It's an uh, honor uh, to be here with you. And thanks for just being bold and reaching out and, uh, you know, just making it happen and showing up here. So it's an honor to have you here and great to meet you and make this connection. Absolutely. It was absolutely on the fly. So I appreciate you uh, responding and reciprocating and inviting me to your beautiful home over here in Puerto Morelos. And like we do in all our uh, podcast episodes, I'd like to start from the inception, from the beginning. So talk to us a bit about um, where were you born and brought up? And uh, what was your childhood like? So I was actually born in Virginia. Um, and my parents, they were, uh, they were uh, students of Yogi Bhajan. And so I was actually born in a Kundalini Yoga ashram. And so I definitely had a pretty unconventional uh, childhood in the United States. And then um, my parents are Sikhs. We, we were raised as Sikhs. So I've worn a turban my whole life. I've had long hair my whole life. And, and that was just a rough childhood <laughs> in, in good old America. Um, back in the day, uh, when I was 12, I went to, uh, I moved to Amritsar and I went to boarding school in Amritsar for about five years. Um, I traveled through huge parts of India, 
um, was very much inspired uh, by by you know the communal living and and the food and um, just the close knit communities that that I think you find so much throughout India and that led a lot of the inspiration behind developing my yoga retreat centers was here was here was a way that I could bring people together um, connect people, show them good times and, and, and ultimately solve for the major pain and problem that you see in, in, in the United States in particular of just tremendous alienation, tremendous feelings of being alone and, and really, you know, people's lives. And, and so I, I felt that by building these retreat centers, I could find that sort of communal connection that I discovered in India and, and turn it into a way uh, of creating a livelihood and 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 make it part of my lifestyle awesome awesome that's amazing um so tell us a bit about you know your parents what was it like um you know growing up and uh maybe also talk a bit about life in the ashram what was it like um on the one hand, it was amazing because it was communal, that we very much were part of a community. On the other hand, it was extremely weird. We were abs like I was very aware from an early age that we were definitely on uh, not normal American people. And I don't know what you call normal American people, but it was safe to say we were not them. <laughs> you know, we're all weird and unique in our own ways, but certainly I would say, you know, we were vegetarian. All of our parents work together. We all look different. We're light skin, but we have turbans on and long hair. Um, so uh, in a lot of ways, my parents were some of the most devout practitioners of Kundalini yoga. My, my dad, for example, has woken up in the morning and done a, a yoga sadhana for 50 years where he practices, he practices yoga, meditation. He goes to Gurdwara. He recites Japji. He like, he is dedicated like to the, to the high, you know, a very high level. Um, so, so devotion, spiritual practice, sadhana, seva, very, you know, important components of my childhood. Um, and really sweet that, that, that we were, we were, it wasn't just my nuclear family, but you know, there was a lot of people around. Um, but it definitely wasn't, you know, your, your, your stereotypical normal American upbringing. Mm -hmm. That's very, very interesting. So growing up, I uh, grew up in a, a nuclear family in India, in Mumbai. I didn't have that communal, you know, lifestyle. I used to go sometimes on my mom's side. They had a really large family. And whenever we used to go there, you know, over the weekend or maybe having like a feast or get together, it just felt so great to know that you have these many aunts and these many uncles and these many cousins. Uh, you know, it just um, even beyond language, when you're surrounding yourself with such people who come together vibrationally, you feel so held, right? And that is comforting. Would you say that? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I, I fundamentally don't think that the nuclear family is the way that humans historically learned, survived, grew together. That, that, that from my reading of history and anthropology, we were meant to be in groups of 20, 30, 50, 100, where you could share responsibilities, you had friends, you had elders, you had people that you could learn from, you had mentors, you had teachers, you had gurus. And then below, below on the flip side, you also had younger people to teach and share and, and instruct. And, and, and that this sort of larger communal structure uh, was just better. I just think it's better for our health. It's better for our longevity. It's better for our brains. And, and I think they've even, you know, shown that in communities where seniors 
are, are, are living with their kids or their grandkids, they live so much longer and happier lives. And so to me, I, I, I think a lot of the pain that, that we see in, in most of our cities, whether it's Mumbai or the West, is, is, is this nuclear structure creates a major breakdown in, in so many of the healthy bonds that tie society together. Yeah, that's very true. Uh, I think what's missing in a lot of uh, large cities and modern lifestyle is the passing down of wisdom from the elders. In fact, in many cities, elders are not respected. Ageism is a major issue, uh, at least in Canada, but I'm sure USA as well. And what I was pondering upon and recently was the fact that when some elder you love that person and you've spent a lot of times with that individual whoever that might be but there's a loss of wisdom also right that wisdom that cannot be contained in any hard drive or you know for that matter and tribulations that 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 that's definitely a loss in that sense also and so to your point it makes sense to live in a community where you have people from all strata, all spectrum of life, young, medium, and the elders, and then uh, uh, you sort of have that full, uh, full spectrum human experience. That makes sense. Absolutely. Uh, it's, um, yeah, it, it, it makes it so rich. It, it, it really does. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so you uh, grew up, uh, you know, obviously witnessing and seeing your parents practice Kundalini Yoga. How did you discover hot yoga? When did that happen? So I broke my back when I was 16 and I had a compression fracture of my L2 and um, I was jumping off this building and I landed in a really stupid way and I broke my back. And um, I tell people it was before that they had invented parkour. And so they just called me really, really stupid. <laughs> so, um, so I, I was just in, I was just in pain and, um, you know, you talk about this with the elders. So I had this one other accident where I got hit in the face. I was riding on top of a bus in, in Amritsar and I got clotheslined by a cable and it broke, it broke the maxilla bone. It knocked my teeth out. And so, so I got dentures. And so by the age of like, by the age of 17, I had dentures and back pain. And so I was just a total hit with all the seniors because we could, we could totally bond over our teeth falling out when we're trying to eat and, and, you know, having to take care of our spines in some, some way, shape and form. So I actually started practicing Ashtanga yoga, um, like they teach from Mysore. And um, that was super therapeutic. And then I, I wandered into Bikram studio in La Cienega in Los Angeles uh, in 2001. And I took my first uh, Bikram yoga class there. And, and then in 2004, um, I just started practicing regularly. And it really, um, I just found I loved the sweat. I loved the heat. I loved the community. Um, you know, it was like booming at the time. And, and I just loved the camaraderie of, um, uh, of the book. Um, I really, I, I, I've kind of looked at the yoga practices as, you know, I, I really think every, all of the different systems have so much to offer and at different stages of your life and what you're looking for, you're going to gravitate towards, uh, each of them in their different ways. But, but I've just been very positively influenced by, by many of the yoga styles. And, and I really just try to take a very student approach to them as, as like, what can I learn here? How can I, how can I benefit from this? And, you know, rather than trying to think I know something, just stay in that beginner's mind of what can I learn? How, how can I be a great student? And, um, and so that's kept me very open-minded to, to the different yoga methods that I've encountered. You know, when I was uh, 18, that's when I had that road accident. Uh, I used to drive a yellow bike to, to university and uh, I used to always wear a helmet. But that particular day, I didn't wear a helmet. And what ended up happening was, it was at, at an intersection and I was coming to a, you know, to a stop and somebody hit me from the right side. It happened to be a school bus, Oof. like a van, not a huge bus. Yeah. But anyway, I, it sort of shent, uh, sent me you know, in the air. And the next thing I know, I've lost consciousness in the hospital. 
multiple stitches on my face. Uh, I also broke my nose, so I've got a deviated septum and trauma on the right side. So I hit it really, you know, I had to have months of, you know, physiotherapy to even feel uh, better because I had a lot of pain on that side. And so I thought to myself, I looked at the universe and said, why now? <laughs> you know, you could have given me an accident when I was like 45 or 55 or maybe later on. But just when I was becoming an adult, the universe, you know, said an accident at a very young age. Uh, you know, even in the yoga, you know, in the yoga <laughs> philosophy, the, the Jivan Mukta, you know, with this idea of like, we're always close to death. Like this, the, these moments, you know, depending on how we, how we, how we operate with them, you know, can either become their biggest curses or our biggest chances for enlightenment. And so I, I resonate with this a lot with, you know, you, you have these traumatic moments and then all of a sudden it's like, well, okay, how are you going to deal with them? How are you going to process them? Cause we're all dead. We know how the story goes. We all end up in, in you know, dust, whether we want to get buried first or we want to get cremated. Eventually we're all dust. And so operating from that mindset is, is so empowering. And then just, you know, when we get broken, when we get beaten, when we get, you know, life hands us our setbacks, you know, that, that those can be our just wake up calls and our reminders that this life is very short you better, you better not waste it. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's very true. Actually, just this morning I got news. One of my uh, relatives passed away. I'm sorry. Young guy. Um, very talented, very intelligent, um, but unfortunately he had a stroke. Oof. Um, you know, his family and you know, our family also is still in disbelief at how such a thing can happen. We always assume that we're going to live till 85 and when we're frail and we're ready to pass away, that's when that will happen. But like to your point, you never know, right? Yeah. Which is why it's really important to uh, recognize and feel grateful for the moment that we have right now and uh, live it to the fullest. That's it. That is absolutely it. Mm -hmm. So how did you arrive in Puerto Morelos? How did, what's that story like? <laughs> um, Mexico's amazing. I mean, it's just, it's just such a beautiful country. It's got so, I mean, it's got so many amazing people. The food is incredible. And, and, and frankly, it, it has so much that actually reminds me of India from the family structure to even like, you know, tortilla instead of roti, you know, you, you, you have, you know, black beans instead of dal, you, you have, um, you know, quesadillas, <laughs> you know, instead of, instead of paneer and, and, uh, and you, and your naan. So you, 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 there, there's, there's something that, positive ways, but ultimately I, I, I didn't have opportunity in India. So I came back to the United States and, and Mexico was just closer. So probably I ended up here a little bit on geography, but, um, in college I bought a one-way ticket to Mexico city and then I finished up my school in Querétaro and then I wandered back up to the United States. I, I took buses and hitchhiked and took trains and I went, I went through all through northern Mexico, through Sinaloa, through to, uh, uh, Chihuahua. And, and then when I ran out of money, I, I tried to clavery. Um, that, that I can tell you another story of that another day. Um, but um, so I made it back to the United States and in the back of my mind, I was like, I want to go back to, I want to go back to Mexico at some point and, and do some type of project. And so I was working in the United States and then, um, I actually, I got into the music business and, um, I was, I, I traveled with uh, Mirabai Seba, who was one of the musicians that we worked with. And I was selling CDs in, um, the botanical gardens here. And one of my friends texted me and said, hey, there's this failed yoga retreat property that's in pretty bad shape, but it's for sale. Why don't you go look at it? And so I just walked down the street and took a look at the property. And um, I was with my wife at the time and uh, we were separated now, unfortunately. But um, uh, she had a great vision for it and I had the chutzpah for it. And so we, we, we just went for it. And uh, the seller ended up taking the offer because it was it was too big for someone who 
uh, wanted a house. It was too small to develop into a major hotel. So it kind of, and, and it was in so much disarray that you needed someone who really wanted to work. And so I think we ended up getting a great deal for it because we met those criteria. We were just crazy enough to go for it. And we didn't know any better. You know, I was 28 or something. And uh, we just went all in, both feet in, and um, turned into just probably the single best business decision I've ever made. And um, it just brought me so many good people and good karma and been just amazingly fun. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For me. That's awesome. How long back was this? Uh, 2012. So about uh, almost 10 years, just over 10 years ago. That's amazing. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah, to your point, I've noticed, I've, I mean, I've been in Canada for like 10 years now. I mean, nine years, sorry. And prior to this, I was in Mumbai. But I noticed coming to Mexico, I feel very welcome in Mexico, if that makes sense. I've been to Chile as well, which is also like a Latin countries you know spanish-speaking country but i didn't feel that way like i do in mexico there's something special about mexico and yucatan in particular i feel you know from the fact that you have the mayan civilization and maya is a word in sanskrit you have the chakas which is like the chakras in india you've got um you, they're into astrology, which sort of resembles Vedic astrology, the way they look at the stars and they map the sun and look at the moon. There's so many different similarities and even cuisine as well. Uh, but just the people, people are so nice, especially the uh, the people who are connected to the Mayan heritage. I went to Chichen Itza, you know, and I, uh, on the corner, this was like a mystical story. On the corner, a lot, hearing these stories right from eBay or some store, I wanted to connect with some individual. And I wasn't planning this, but then I just, you know, energetically, I got drawn to this, uh, you know, group of people who uh, I believe were connected to the Mayans or, you know, through, through the tradition. Um, and I got the obsidian crystal, but also the the, 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 the glass, obsidian glass, through which you can sort of see, look at the sun directly. And there was this one guy who smiled, and that smile was like a heart smile. It was weird. It was. It felt as if he was smiling through his ancestors. It was. It was such a weird moment, but like a transcendental moment. I felt so much love for this individual through different generations, and uh, yeah, that was just it's like a satori moment. If that makes sense, I love it. Right? I love it. So I felt I just needed to get that crystal. I got it, I, uh, and so I still have it. So I'm really looking forward to it being a part of my collection and uh, my memory of uh, being in uh, Puerto Morelos. I love it. Right. You know, to, to add on to that, uh, what's very special about Riviera Maya is you have, you have the ancient Mayan culture. So you, you do have a steady culture that has been here for... Uh, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000 years. And on top of that, you have these cities like Cancun and Playa del Carmen, which didn't exist 40 years ago. So, so the people of Cancun and Playa del Carmen in particular are not from, they're not multi-generation. Maybe there's one generation here. So I also do love cities, essentially. We're all, on some level, almost everyone in Cancun and Playa del Carmen is immigrants. So they're people that, that didn't, their parents did not grow up there. And that dynamic, in general, makes people more friendly, more open-minded, more, more, more skilled in their communication style, and, 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 and the, the need to make friends, make community, make connections, to establish your business, to, to raise your family, to find a partner, to, to help find other people to help you raise your children goes way up. And so 
I think the unique combination virtual culture, very open-minded um, group of people. And, and that's, that's been my experience here. Um, and on some level, uh, you know, some of those similarities were, was part of my experience in, in India, um, where I was part of a, a large group of people that were migrants and also deeply interested in spirituality. So, mm. um, so it made me comfortable to be here. That's amazing. So what is unique about Puerto Morelos? For somebody who's tuning in for the first time, maybe they've not been to Mexico in the first place, yeah. and they've heard us, but yeah. they've not heard about Puerto Morelos. So talk to us about what's unique about Puerto Morelos, not just as a city, but as a retreat, a retreat yeah. zone as well. So Puerto Morelos is older than Cancun, older than Playa del Carmen, but it's along the same 307, which is the highway. And so this highway that goes, you know, from, you know, really goes from, from, from Cancun all the way down to uh, Belize. Um, this is one of the oldest cities, uh, but, but it's smaller and, and it's sort of claim to fame was that it was the original gum importer. So you would have these very cowboy like characters going back to the 1800s who would go out into the, into the jungle west of here and they would farm chicle and chicle is, uh, like it's basically gum before they created synthetic gum. So Puerto Morelos was a port that you would export all of that chicle out of. But there's even in the history of Puerto Morelos, you hear about a lot of these kind of cowboy like characters who came down here and would go out into the wild and and farm the chicle and then and then export it out, you know, to the rest of the Americas and 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 even to Europe. So you have very much a, a uh, a fishing uh, culture, you have a shipping culture, and you, and you have this entrepreneurial culture uh, that, that has formed Puerto. One of the greatest things about Puerto Morelos is there is actually a big push for conservation, and so you don't have massive development here because they passed laws that you could only develop on three streets. So, so there's a mangrove, and the, and the way that the environmentalists passed this is that the mangroves feed fresh water in towards the Mesoamerican reef, which is in the ocean right out in front of us. So you have amazing snorkeling. You have an amazing reef structure that is then fed by this fresh water from the mangroves that then passes under underneath us and, and feeds into the ocean. So uh, hopefully it'll stay this way because it's it's really a cute town. It's not as sprawling as Cancun or Playa del Carmen. So you really kind of create very high property values. And you have a lot of people here who, who really do invest a lot of their time and resources into developing really nice properties. Um, and so it, it's got a great charm to it. It's smaller than Playa del Carmen. It's smaller than Tulum, smaller than Cancun, but but still very accessible, very easy to access. And that was one of the reasons that we ended up here was just because it was it was just so easy to to deal with and and get here and and really operate from. Yeah, just day before yesterday, I went for my uh, snorkeling session in the reef and what a sight it is what beautiful what beauty uh we we went on this uh boat out into the reef and then as soon as you go down there and you point your head downwards you enter a different world a different dimension altogether where now you're the visitor i mean i'm the visitor anyway <laughs> but uh, you're looking at uh, these different types of fish and um, obviously the reef and small crustaceans and i saw this huge barracuda as well and for folks that don't know barracuda you know you know does not attack humans but the way they look at you it's kind of scary <laughs> and i guess that's part of the draw as well right is for people to have this unique experience of uh, being able to yeah open water scuba certification here and it's such a it's such a good place to get scuba certified because um, they get you in the water really on day one 
Um, but you know, for anyone who hasn't done a lot of snorkeling or scuba diving, it's, it's an amazing experience because it, it really puts you into perspective of like what a vast giant planet we're a part of and really how small we are. And, and I, I think that those are actually great experiences to have to be just humble and, and, and remember our, our, our sort of, our sort of small place in this universe amidst, you know, really vast, expansive, uh, things like the ocean. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Now talk to us a bit about your vision to create this retreat center. Now I know that your friend told you about this, you know, this property that was available, but that was just a property, right? That was just potential energy, so to speak. So after that, what happened? How did you get the vision along with your uh, manifested? Because you said this one was first and the one, uh, the Potomac uh, Casa Om was after that, right? So talk to us a little bit about what the envisioning process was like. So I ran a festival. The, the, the owner of the property like was just not a good person and really hustled me in the deal. And, you know, I was put on a small festival, music festival for about 250 people. And I just, I was like so pissed. (laughs) And I remember thinking to myself, like, if this criminal can do this, just imagine what I, you know, how I could do it better. And so I had this experience where I, I, I knew there was demand for these kinds of things. And, and, and I sort of had pride in it where I wanted to prove that I could do it better. Um, I planned it in the United States and my budget was like $10 million. <laughs> and so I, you know, I had no money. And, and so, you know, I was looking around in the United States and just realized that it was never going to happen in the United States. And so uh, when I stumbled upon this property, um, it was in just bad enough shape that I knew I could test my ideas and, and I knew it was more money than even I had at the time, but it was like close enough in the realm where, where if I, if, if, you know, if she would take my, if the seller would take my offer, I, um, is that the money will come. And the money will work it out. And too many people are, are thinking, oh, I don't have the money to pull off something in real estate. But if you've got the idea and you know you're right, you'll probably work out the money. And don't let not having the money be an excuse for not proving that you can do it better if you, if you know your real estate concept will work. And I share that a lot because I've been chronically underfunded my whole life in my real estate development. Frank, you know, I like, you know, I've never really had the money that I needed to pull off my projects. And that's caused me so much pain and suffering. But but ultimately, you know, now I'm in a position where my things are working. And thank God I didn't wait until I had the capital to actually test my ideas. That is amazing. Action Tribe, think about your life as well, uh, especially if you're listening to this podcast right now, depending if you are in transit or if you're at home. And I'm sure that from my conversations with all of you as well, each one of us has some idea in your mind. And a lot of times um, I find that we are our own critic and we are the ones that are holding us back in terms of self-doubt or low self-worth or low self-confidence or just comparison syndrome, comparing yourself with others, a lot of times the other person might have achieved those goals, but those goals are not in your purpose or your vision. Your goals are separate. So this invitation is for you to look into your life and really introspect what is that goal that it is that you want to manifest um, you know, and chances are it doesn't have to be in the United States. It could be in some other country as well. Uh, the world has opened up after the pandemic and people are taking benefit of the fact that there are other places around the world that might not be as expensive as uh, New York or Los Angeles. So you do have options. Uh, so Hargobind, I wanted to ask you, how did you develop your entrepreneurial skills? Because building a yoga retreat center is a lot of work, right? So it's not just about the idea, but obviously there are so many moving pieces to that. Well, what was it for you? I, I think it was Amritsar, you know, like in, in my time in Amritsar, I had such a strong connection to the, to the entrepreneurial spirit, the, the, the shopkeeper, you know, Dukan, um, you know, uh, culture 
uh, from Amritsar. And, and I actually, uh, I had an opportunity um, to start a little canteen, like a, like a calf at my school there and and so when i was in school i would you know go out into town and i would buy up all types of like biscuits and coca-cola and ice cream and 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 all kinds of of goods and i'd bring them back and i would sell them in my school and the experience really left me with this real deep impression that entrepreneurism can change your your whole uh, belief system. And you said it best when we were just starting to chat, when you said that entrepreneurism is a self-development process. And and that was my first taste of it, was, was, was actually in India. Um, I, I just got that opportunity because I, I just, I got lucky and, and I was bold. Um, and so it always sat with me that entrepreneurism, uh, uh, becoming an entrepreneur was always going to be my path. And, and the, the real mixture with the, with the freedom that the yoga practice gives, that meditation gives, that self-reliance brings that mixture with entrepreneurs, a better way of living. And, um, you know, I, I, I also, I loved this idea, even just like we bow to, we bow to no one but God. <laughs> and so these false idols of our bosses or our, you know, oppressive leaders or, 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 you know, those guys, yeah, that's, that's fine. Their teachers, their leadership, that's good. But ultimately, you know, I think the entrepreneur bows to no man but God. And, and I love that. <laughs> that is a powerful sentiment and a powerful thought to have that we we bow to no one but god and that's actually very liberating right because a lot of times we're like we gotta impress this person and we gotta do that and we gotta do this and yes there are times in your life when you might have a boss or a mentor or somebody that's teaching or training you or something but at the end of the day like tupac said only God can judge me, right? <laughs> that is Love it. it. <laughs> Only God can judge me. <laughs> awesome, awesome. So, you know, the thing about entrepreneurship, since you mentioned, the good thing about entrepreneurship is that you take part of the profits if the business does well. But also on the other side, you got to take part. Of, uh, and that's why people love entrepreneurship is because of the possibility, the potentiality that uh, that every business represents. So uh, talk to us about taking on risk. How do you navigate through taking on risk, whether it is in real estate or whether it is in, um, you know, just selling out a retreat because there might be some implied risk in there. Uh, what sort of mindset did you have to develop in order to take on uh, projects like this. So the first thing that I would say about entrepreneurism that I think everyone needs to fundamentally understand is that if you own your own business, you have the chance to make a return on multiple of your earnings. And you will never get that if you work for somebody else. You will never get the chance to say, hey, I'm going to sell my business for three to five times earnings or five to seven times earnings. So you actually get the chance with a business and, and it's hard. It's not easy. But that's the real motivator is you, you get to collect future earnings today. And you just never get that unless you build your own business. So the, there's there's just there's a level of winning that can happen when you're on your own that that you just never get if 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 you work for somebody else. So when we talk about risk, um, you know, there's just different types of there's different types of fish in the sea, and I was always very comfortable with risk a little bit too comfortable with risk. So it was very much my personality type. Um, but it was also that I got started early before I had kids. I got started before I had responsibilities. And, and, and so I, I think for anyone who's listening, what I would say is try to be ready to take your risks when you can fit, when you can lose, because, you know, before you have kids, before you have family, or after your kids are grown or after, you know, you end up single or you end up divorced <laughs> like me, you know, then your risk, your, your, your ability to take risk goes way up. And so, you know, the, in, taking risk is not a good thing to do when you need stability. 
and, and certainly taking risk. And, and even in my own life, I think some of my risks kind of directly led to, to, to my divorce. There are real consequences to, to, to taking a risk, but just knowing your life will exponentially improve by the more risks that you do take. And, and way too many people are playing it way too safe. And, and so I, I, I would just say, know, know, know your moment to take, especially if you want to hit it big. So when creating something from nothing, um, there are multiple parts and a lot of it is physical. You got to make a call, you got to do your taxes, you got to create a landing page, you got to run ads. Those are the physical parts where you got to do something, right? But also there's the envisioning part, which is the initial, you know, creating part, which happens in the mind. So what is your personal way of sort of manifesting your vision? Any, any guidance around that? Um, I, I, I like... I like to think about vision as a spiritual practice that, that what's so amazing about being human is the ability to see, see something and be like, Oh, that would be a cool building. And then you go and build that building. I, I don't think that there's anything more fulfilling in life than to have high vision and then go execute to make it happen. Um, so I have a method that I follow and there's seven components to it. Um, and, and those seven components to it, like the, the, the fourth step is really creating your vision. So how I create vision, I basically, I'll, I'll, I'll talk you through it real quick. Okay. So first one, first step before you get into vision, you, you, you want to get into your soul. You want to get into like what your motivation is, why you're doing it, what your spiritual draw is it? Why are you motivated to do it? If you've got soul in it, then you pursue it. Okay. Next step is what's the karma. So what actually happened for you to be motivated to create this vision? Okay. So all of us are walking through time, acquiring experiences and those experiences aren't in the past. They're in the present moment. And so if you have a vision to build a yoga retreat center, there's certain things that happen to you. And if you can, if you can solve your pain and solve your customer's pain, then you've got a real idea. If it doesn't solve your pain and your customer's pain, then there's, there's no, there's no energy here. Okay. So then step number three, I call Dharma, which is just, are, is this worth doing or not? And coming to that place of like, is this the right path or not means, means that, that, that it's worthy of a vision. And so I don't skip to the vision until I have Dharma, until I have karma, until I have soul. If that all lines up, then I start to see, okay, well, what could this right path look like? And that's when I start to paint the vision. And once I paint the vision, cause I know I'm solving a problem. I know I have soul in it and I know I want to commit to this journey. Then I, then I believe that this is a, a vision worth going on because ultimately your visions will change your life. And the best compliment anyone ever gave to me is they said, it's like I'm walking in the mind of Hargobind. And I just thought that was the coolest thing where, where that, that it was a mentor of mine where he realized that like, we were in a space that I had envisioned and now it was real. And that, that, that to me was just gave me the greatest feeling ever. So I'm very methodical about my visions in a sort of spiritual way. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true. You know, like, um, like a lot of people say, especially Deepak Chopra as well. If you really look at things that are physical around you, the buildings, the walls, right? The cars, the, the, the tractor or whatnot. It looks physical to you, but deep down, if you go at the molecular level, 99% of it is emptiness, is space. And there are these profound questions that when you go into the molecular level, even the scientists begin to wonder and realize how little we know, right? And so to your point, when a entrepreneur from nothing because at some point, that building or that new idea or that new factory was just a figment of their imagination. And if they hadn't sort of listened to their intuition, maybe somebody else would create it. But then that other person would get the credit for it also. 
I, I heard totally. this theory that sometimes when some idea comes to your mind, it's not your idea ne- necessarily, but it's the universe trying to see if you can be the guardian and the custodian of that idea. I love that. I love it. Amazing, amazing. And so one thing that really uh, intrigued me was in your quest uh, to, to create these uh, retreat centers, you had to learn construction as well, right? So what was that thought process like? And how long did it take you to, to learn? I, I think this is an important component of this is that I have no construction background. Nobody in my family does construction. I, I have no general contracting experience. Really, my construction my, my construction skills were developed really through uh, the development of my, uh, of my properties. And um, I mean, I think if you're taking anything, you can know as you've been because such tremendous, um, these building, these properties were some of the most painful experiences of my life. Um, so I, I, I can't say I recommend doing it this way. Um, but for me, it really worked out in that I got the education of a lifetime in that I now on a pretty good level, understand construction and building uh, at a high level that I probably would have never got if I had gone to work in construction because nobody's going to just hand you the keys to, you know, build them a mansion on the river or, or, or a beachside property um, when you have no resume to show for it. But if you're the boss, <laughs> you can do whatever the hell you want, <laughs> you know, just so long as you can pay your bills and survive. And, and so... Um, my journey through construction um, ha- has been a very rewarding one. Um, yeah. Amazing, amazing. I wanted to ask you, have you ever had a mystical, spiritual experience that you even today look back and say, what was that? Like, I'm sure you might have multiple or maybe not. But I just wanted to check with you. So when I broke my back, which is ironic, I landed on my tailbone. And in the Kundalini Yoga uh, scriptures and in the Kundalini Yoga practice, this idea that the, the, sp- the, the snake coils up your spine, <laughs> delivering the Kundalini energy to your brain, uh, causes a certain level of enlightenment and awakening. And when I landed on my, on my tailbone, uh, the the compression moved up my spine very specifically my body on just a physical level my culture where I'm from the, the, those types of, of experiences so I, I do think of that um, as a spiritual experience I don't recommend it please don't do that to yourself um, but but in terms of like severe uh, energetic experience that, that that's definitely one of them um, from a philosophical perspective, I'm really not a fan of chasing extreme mystical experiences. Most of the, the people that I know that, and, and myself included, because I was very much into chasing those mystical experiences. I, 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 just my observation has been that it's not super helpful for that many people. Like what is really helpful is discipline, consistency practice over long periods of time for, for, for very sustainable goals. The people that I've seen that are chasing these extreme mystical experiences, it's feast and famine where they're high one day, they're low the next day. They're high the one day, they're low the next day. And oftentimes those people don't survive the lows and, and it's not sexy. It's not what most people want. And it's, it's cause it's long, it's boring. And it's and it, and it and it ultimately takes all of the skills that nobody really wants, which is fortitude, <laughs> consistency, <laughs> discipline, and 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 strength. So, um, but yeah, that's my answer. Yeah, that, that's uh, <clears throat> that's very true. Uh, these experiences are like illusions, right? A lot of times, they happen to us, or we experience them, or we don't know what led to that experience, and then that because we want to experience that same thing or even something better to your point we end up uh, going in the wrong direction because we are only attached to the experience rather than uh, uh, the journey itself uh, the practice the sadhana 
um i wanted to ask you what are some of the main things to keep in mind when promoting or marketing a sold out retreat i have a very methodical process that i follow i have 19 methods i actually have a free ebook um i think you can just get it at uh casoom.com slash uh ebook probably or we'll drop it in we'll drop it in the comments so i have I have a very base, I, I have a methodology that I follow for it. Uh, other than that methodology, what I would say about people getting into the retreat business, my single biggest piece of advice is have a clientele already in place. And that if you have a group that is already coming to you for some level of of spiritual development, of health and wellness, of your yoga studio, of your coaching program, or something where people are already actively consuming a product that you create, then if you can bring them to your retreat where they can go in depth with you, it's the easiest thing to sell because people want your next thing. And, and, uh, there's a market, you know, Dan Kennedy from, from he's the marketing legend. He always says, you know, customers in motion, stay in motion until one of two things happen. One, you break their trust or two, you run out of things to sell. And so you never break their trust. Like don't ever break your client's trust, like never, ever. And then number two, don't run out of things to sell. And so if they're already in that motion with you where they're already getting really positive benefits, they're already changing their lives in positive ways, you're already that, that beacon of light for them, that's when it's super easy to sit and to create a sold out retreat is when, when you're already in motion and now this can just become your slightly more premium offer. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. Because sometimes... Uh, especially if a person does not know you, they would not directly go into a retreat. But if, depending on what their awareness level is uh, and their interest level is, you give them an ebook, and then maybe you do like a challenge, a three-week program, one-on-one, and then they'll be like, I know you, I trust you, and now let's go to wherever, Mexico or, I don't know, Thailand or some other place, right? Exactly. That's, that's, that's exactly how it works. Um, if you were... To start today, your retreat business, would there be something else that you would do differently if you were you know, starting today? I was absolutely clueless when I started. Like, I just ran in head first, like I tend to do. And again, running in head first, I'm not complaining about where I am. Like, I'm happy with where I am. Like, I'm glad that was my mentality. If I knew what I knew now, I would just get there faster and, and that there's just very methodical ways to approach this. So, you know, when I started, when I started running retreats, I started planning them for other people. I had no skills, I had no experience and I had no market. Um, if what I would do differently now is I think 80% of this business is marketing. 20% 20% of it is you're a great yoga teacher or you're a great co-puncturist or your percent of it presenting how you're publishing, how you're writing your book, how you're developing your products, how you're doing your podcast like this. I would be spending 80% of my time on, on marketing and 20% of it on the actual what of what I'm delivering because eh, the, the what is a commodity. Everybody knows you should eat well and, and exercise. Like, like we don't need, <laughs> this isn't that difficult. Like eat well and exercise. 80% of it is how are you going to inspire them to do that? How are you going to sell them? How are you going to cook for them? How are you going to teach them? How are you going to, how are you going to convince someone to make positive change in their lives? That's the hard part because we all know what the what is. It's just how do we actually get people to do it? And that is the art uh, of this business. Amazing. Amazing. So what lies ahead for you in 2023? Um, 2023 is, uh, you know, I'm getting divorced, which, which, is, which is a heartbreaker. Um, but, um, it, you know, it, it's, it's new beginnings for me. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of closing up, closing up my karma, you know, closing up that, that stage of my life. Um, and, and really 
you know, divorce is just an, uh, it, it's, I've never experienced something with so much instability where you don't exactly know what you own. You don't exactly know what your responsibilities are. You don't exactly know what's fair. You know, we've, we've been together 17 years and that's pretty much my adult life. So to me, you know, 2023 is, is really about getting grounded, getting my feet on the ground, getting focused on, on what my next move is. Um, but really what's fascinating about me being where I am now is I actually have skills. Like I, I I've done most of the, my entrepreneurial journey without real skills. But once you've done this, like I've done two retreat centers in two different countries, my skill set is, is to do anything. So, well, depending on how the divorce plays out, <laughs> don't, 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 don't count your blessings too, too quick. Um, so, so maybe I'll do another project. Um, I, I want to get my feet on the ground. I want to get, I want to get, you know, just comfortable and everybody happy. And I have so much, so much love for my, for my ex. And I have a nine year old, uh, that I love more than anything in the whole wide world. So I, I have a lot of spiritual work to do, you know, in terms of figuring out who I am, what I'm about. And really it's, it's an identity change, like going from married to divorced is a big time identity change. And, and really the world saw you as a couple and they saw you as who you were married to, uh, in a large part. And especially in my world where we really, we really developed all of our stuff together. Um, it, it's a major identity shift. And so I, I've got some spiritual work to do in terms of like figuring out who I am and what I'm about and, and, and what, you know, the, my, my next moves are going to be, but ultimately, um, I'm, I'm excited for that. And, uh, so long story short, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you being vulnerable and sharing all of this, uh, with us and with our audience as well, because, um, you know, I can sense that especially people who tune to this episode and tune to our podcast are at an inflection point in their lives. They're at a decision point where it could be, you know, related to relationships or like a career change or for that matter, finances or spirituality. They're at a point where they were doing something in life and now they see an opportunity to shift. Maybe they've been, you know, this, this is the moment. Uh, and so Action Tribe, if this uh, is where you're at, then, uh, you know, like you're listening to in this conversation today, it's all about, you know, listening to your intuition, not waiting till things are perfect, but also trusting the journey and knowing that uh, you are exactly where you need to be in this universe. And there is something as divine timing. You're not too late. You're not too early. But this is the exact moment where you need to be. And this is the episode <clears throat> that you need to listen to right now. So, Hargobind, how can somebody listening to this episode learn more about you? Um, so if you want to learn specifically on retreats, I, I teach a challenge online, um, which is spread over five days. And I teach all of my 19 methods on developing um yeah, your yoga retreat. And, and that gets, it's largely, it's largely about marketing. It's a, it's a, it's, it's a fair amount about hero's journey. It's a fair amount about how to put your schedule together, choosing your venue. But, but really it's, I'm really trying to just get people to, to, to really believe in themselves because once you, once you get these straightforward slash challenge, uh, I run anywhere from seven to 10 retreats myself. Um, you can find those on casaom.com and casaompotomic.com. Uh, I'm pretty active on Instagram at Harg Yoga. Uh, I, I, and then I post on, on Facebook somewhat regularly. And, and I have a podcast called yoga retreat secrets, um, where I share a lot of my methodologies uh, on developing yoga retreat centers and, and yoga retreats. So that's a good start. And I'm super accessible. I, you know, I love chatting with people and they. Awesome. We'll have this information in the show notes. Action Tribe, if you enjoyed this episode, and I'm sure you did, make sure you share this with your friends, your family, or somebody that you know might benefit from this conversation. Make sure you connect with me at 
my seven chakras on instagram at my seven chakras and if you have any comment feedback on any message that you'd like to share send me an email aj at my seven chakras.com that's aj at my seven chakras.com and finally before closing make sure if you're like cold showers join our whatsapp support group that's my seven chakras.com forward slash cold one that's my seven chakras.com forward slash cold one work doing daily cold showers and really feeling that euphoria and feeling what it means to be alive i'll see you next time thank you for listening to my seven chakras at my seven chakras.com that is my s-e-v-e-n chakras.com When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.